how easily we take for granted the privilege of being able to sing together these glorious words. Just praise God for this time to praise Him as a local church. Uh, If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. We press on today in our series in Romans, which we have been in for almost a year. And uh, just want to take a moment to thank Will Daney, one of our deacons, for preaching last week in a major pinch. It was a major pinch for him. I was out of town with my family, and Trey was scheduled to preach. But Trey got sick, and all of the elders were either... uh, out of town or had been exposed in some way, so weren't, weren't able to preach, and so Will stepped up to the plate. Uh, very grateful for him, and uh, he did so with such short notice. And what's remarkable about that is that's not the first time that Will has done that. <laughs> Those of you who have been here for some time well, may remember about four years ago, almost exactly, Uh, My daughter Adeline was born on uh, Christmas Day, but it was 2 o'clock in the morning, so it was about Christmas Eve, and Will knew that he was going to be filling in for me if Jennifer went into labor, but we had the Christmas Eve service that night, and he thought he was in the clear. She had not gone yet, and so I called him about 11.05, I think, that night, and of course, when the phone rang, he knew immediately what that meant. So there, Christmas morning... Sunday, December 25th, there in 2016, uh, Will filled in at such short notice. So I'm grateful for you, brother, for, uh, for doing that and bringing God's word to us. The title for the sermon today is Adam and Christ Compared. <clears throat> Adam and Christ Compared. Paul has taken us back to Genesis 3. He likes to take his readers back to the Old Testament. In fact, uh, the book of Romans in particular is filled with citations, allusions, references to various parts of the Old Testament. Paul very much roots everything that has happened in Christ. We could call it the Christ event. Paul roots all of that in redemptive history and what God has done among the Hebrews from the beginning. And we saw in chapter 4, he went back to Abraham, had much to say there as he explicated Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And then here recently, as we've come into the second part of chapter 5 of Romans, Paul takes us back to Genesis 3, to the fall of humanity into sin, to the sin of the one man, The first man, Adam. Adam, Paul tells us in chapter 5, verse 14, was a type of Christ. And we spent some time a couple of weeks ago focusing on what that means, typology, the whole idea of there being types, pictures, anticipators of Christ in the Old Testament, things that point forward to him. And as I said last week, we see that in various figures. In some ways, Joseph functions as a type of Christ portrayed in this kind of perfect way, and then he brings in the Gentiles and God's people, brings salvation to the Jews and the Gentiles, and so forth. You could go on and look at David 
and uh, other figures throughout the Old Testament. Also, aspects of the Old Testament like the sacrificial system or the ram there in Genesis 22. So many little pointers. And one of those, Paul tells us, in Romans 5 is Adam. Adam was a type of Christ. This means he is to be compared to Christ. He is, in a sense, and I emphasize that only in a sense, like Christ. And as we venture into this passage, into chapter 5, verses 15 to 21, what we find is one big comparison. And so the whole passage functions as one massive comparison. How is it that Christ and Adam are similar? But within this one major comparison, we have several contrasts, many ways that they are different. So one big way that they are similar and many ways they are different. The comparison can be summed up with these words. So if you're asking, what is, what is similar about Adam and Christ? It would be this, one man, one act, many affected. That's the big idea. One man, one act, many affected. And to be even more precise, we could say one man, one act on behalf of many. Adam and Christ are presented in Romans chapter 5 as representative figures. Or you could say this, representative heads of humanity. Let me give you a couple of quotes to bring this out. How is it that Adam and Christ are similar as Paul goes into his discussion here? Douglas Moo, I'll, I'll quote him, a major commentator. Uh, his commentary on Romans, quite thick. Uh, has been called the best that there is on the book of Romans, and it is excellent. But here's what he says. The similarity between the two, Adam and Christ that is, consists in the fact that an act of each is considered to have determinative significance for those who belong to each. So Within the category of those who belong to each, the act of the one man has determinative significance for all those in that category. Of course, we know that everyone fits in the category of Adam. Some fit in the category of Christ, within Christ. Here's another quote, Thomas Schreiner. Adam is a type in that he, like Christ, functioned as the covenant head of all humanity. Last week, or a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the headship of Adam. He functions as that representative head, so that in Adam all sinned. We all sinned in Adam. And there have been various ways of explaining original sin. And what I tried to do a couple of weeks ago is just explain that this is, this is really bearing in on that doctrine. That notion that when Adam sinned, he sinned for all human beings. That all sinned in Adam. Humanity at large bears guilt before God in and through Adam. That's very important for understanding the significance of Christ. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 
21 to 22. Listen to the language here of comparison. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. This is the language of comparison. Then he says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But, as I said before, and as the content of those verses from 1 Corinthians make clear, this comparison is full of contrast. So as you enter the passage, the big idea is comparison, but when you get down into the details of the text, what you see is that it is a comparison laced with contrast, filled with contrast. In some respects, Adam and Christ are nothing alike. Similar, alike, but nothing alike in other respects. This morning... We're going to look at four aspects of that contrast. And these will be our four points if you're taking notes. So four aspects of this contrast between Adam and Christ. And here they are. Two powers, two backgrounds, two outcomes, and two acts. These are the four major contrasts that we find. And if you go and dig a little deeper, you'll find all sorts of little tiny contrasts within that. But these are four, I think, that help us to to crack open the content of this text. So before we pray, before we read it, I would just want to ask this question. What is the net result of this one big comparison with several contrasts? When you walk away from this service today, When you leave here this morning, what is the net effect, impact, that this should have on you? Much here, many details. In fact, uh, this text, as I said a couple weeks ago, has been described as condensed, a text that needs to be unraveled. It is packed full of material. Every single phrase is just packed together so tight that unraveling them becomes very difficult. So what is the big thing you need to get as you leave here today? And it's this. All of this that we're reading is meant to give the Christian reader certainty, security, and assurance in God's grace through Christ. It is your in-Christness, to use the language of Ephesians in particular, it is your in-Christness that comes to the surface as we look at this text. And so as a Christian, when you read this, the response that the Holy Spirit is calling us to is to take that in-Christness and to be filled with certainty and assurance about what we have in Christ, who we are in Christ, and to face sin and death with joy. To confess our sins this morning as we've done corporately in our service with a sense of joy that all those sins have been covered, overcome, to stare death in the face. Maybe some of you have come here this morning and you have received news that you have a disease or you have something wrong and death seems even nearer to you than it does generally for all people. A text like this should cause us to joyfully stare sin and death in the face and to hold up 
explicitly and clearly a victorious, majestic, bountiful in his salvation, Christ. If you would go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Romans 5. We're, we're going to read all the way from 12 to 21. This is the larger unit, but we've looked at verses 12 to 14 already, and so today we're just going to be digging into verses 15 to 21. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So last week we introduced the typology, and now we're going to dig into it. Verse 15 and following. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, hear those beautiful words, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Before you sit down, let me just bring you back to the last verse of the previous passage. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation, through righteousness leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord, through Christ. All that we have is through Christ. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to God in prayer and ask that our hearts would be malleable in the hands of God this morning and that we would listen, we would focus And that God's spirit would fall on us, penetrating to the deep recesses of our hearts, exposing sin, purging it, and reminding us of who we are in Christ. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that we have experienced already in this service. Father, thank you for the prayers and the singing, the confession of sin. Lord, we are in awe of you as we worship you this morning. Father, as we read these just words that are beyond our, our comprehension in some respects, they're so full of heavenly truth, so full of realities that calls angels to inquire into the, the glory of it all. Father, our minds are so feeble, so finite. And even as we look at these words in detail, we, we still have that sense that we can't fully penetrate all that's here. And God, it humbles us before your face. And we just give you praise that you have, through Christ, overcome sin and death. And that in him, we have the hope of glory. We have hope of perfection. We have hope of a new heaven and a new earth. Hope of life forever in your presence, God. That far surpasses even the experience of Adam and Eve before they sinned. We have you in us, Father, by your spirit. The spirit of the living God. The spirit of Christ himself. And by him this morning we walk, we live, we speak, we act, and now we come to your word to receive it, asking that your Holy Spirit would apply these truths to us, that, that he would make our salvation more precious to us, that he would make us more cognizant of the beauty of it, the power of it, and how much it overwhelms our weaknesses and our sins. God, I pray that great hope would emerge in every heart of every Christian this morning as we go through this passage. And as we continue in Romans 5 to 8, that we would just be bursting with hope. May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace in believing. Lord, we pray that that would happen today through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So four contrasts as we come to this big comparison. And the first contrast involves power, efficacy, power, two powers. Look at verse 15 to begin with, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. So we already know there we're, we're on contrast ground. There is a dissimilarity here. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. One of the things that makes this passage so challenging is it, it there's a lot of repetition, and yet what appears to be repetition 
is, is not in, in some respects. So you, you're going through and you get a lot of fray. You, know, you probably read this before and you've thought that. There's a lot of, of repetitious elements, but then as you dig into them, you realize that it, it's not actually repetition. There's new information there and quite a bit of new information, new contrasts present. And so literally going through this passage, it's imp- just, just draw it out. You have to draw it out on a board. You have to draw it out on a piece of paper to sort of see how everything fits in these little boxes as Paul explains it. The contrast that Paul lays out here is between the trespass through Adam and the gracious gift through Christ. So that's the big idea, the trespass through Adam and the gracious gift through Christ. We know that the former has power. Make no mistake about it. The act of Adam. And what flowed out of that and what that did was powerful. Just look around. The world is filled with death. Filled with death. We live our happy lives, sometimes happier than others. And we just often really don't think about death. We don't want to be morbid. And in our culture today, even thinking about death, it's just, you know, you just ignore that. You ignore the fact that you're going to die. It's going to happen. But you just forget about that. That's later That's for a later day. Today I live. Later. Later. I'm not even going to think about that. I will die. But the world is filled with death. And this really struck me. I've said this before. It really struck me when we lived in Scotland in the city of Edinburgh. We walked around. We didn't have a car. We walked everywhere. Sometimes took the bus. And the city is filled with cemeteries. And these are really beautiful cemeteries. It's kind of strange that people, tourists, will go and walk through cemeteries. It's, It's really weird. But We do that because, especially in some of these places, the cemeteries are really impressive. I mean, these these, uh, gravestones with moss growing on them going back years and centuries and centuries, and some of them of quite notable figures in history. All dead. Pick your favorite historical figure. Those of us who like history, you probably have a few people you quite admire, maybe Christians in Christian history or maybe not even uh, Christians, just people for many reasons that you just admire throughout history or, or particular individuals that you just find fascinating. You, not, you don't necessarily want to emulate them, but you find them fascinating. Pick any historical figure, and no matter who you pick, they hold one thing in common. They died. Now, of course, we know Enoch and Elijah are exceptions to that. We won't get into that. The common lot of humanity is death. The power of Adam's sin is all around us. The truth of the biblical narrative, the truth of the biblical worldview is imprinted in every family. Because in every family, there are loved ones who have died. Death is a certain reality. And this tells us that the trespass through the one man was powerful and it is a power to be reckoned with. And yet, that power 
Now listen to this. This is what Paul is saying here. That power stands as nothing when contrasted with the efficacy of God's grace in Christ. The power of death, so universal, so certain, stands as nothing next to God's grace in Christ. Paul's point is this. If that's what the one representative man's sin did, death, then how much more has the grace that comes through Christ accomplished? How much more has this accomplished than that accomplished? Look around, we see what it did. Sin and death are dwarfed by the surpassing greatness of God's grace in Christ. So this is one way they are different. One is far superior to the other. One is infinitely greater than the other. So this first contrast is really a contrast uh, concerning superiority. But the superiority is in the efficacy and power of it. Two powers. One stripped, the other reigning supreme. And that is why Paul uses the word abounded. It means to be present in abundance. Yes, sin and death are present in abundance. Sin and death abound. But how much more? That's Paul's point. How much more God's grace through Christ? Listen to the way Calvin describes this. You can, almost, you can almost always quote Calvin when coming to a text of Scripture. This is what he says. There is a greater measure of grace procured by Christ than of condemnation introduced by the first man. And then I love this part. Since the fall of Adam had such an effect as to produce the ruin of many much more efficacious is the grace of God to the benefit of many. What Adam ruined, Christ has remade. What Adam destroyed, Christ has exalted. And this contrast in power or efficacy is not just where Paul starts So we're looking just at that very first verse, verse 15, but this contrast in efficacy and power is not just where he starts, it is also where he ends the passage. And these really serve as brackets. So here I want to go to the last two verses as we try to, as I try to explain this passage, I think this is probably the best way to do it. I want to put verses 20 and 21 with verse 15 because they concern the same thing. They are making the same point. So look at the end of the passage. We've seen the beginning. Now look at the end. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You see that language? So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here, once again, we get this language of abounding. Do you see? It's at the beginning of the passage, and it is at the end of the passage. Abounding grace. That's that's a big idea here within this comparison. Abounding grace. Here, 
in the end of the passage, it is superabounding or abounding all the more. The law increases sin by making it a trespass. The law takes sin and makes it explicitly an infraction against God's law, a trespass, a transgression against the law. In that way, it increases sin by making it a direct rebellion against God's command. That's what happens in Genesis 2 and 3. God gives a direct command to Adam, and he broke that direct command. It's a trespass. The law did not exist between Adam and Moses. There was nonetheless sin. But this specific character of a, of a trespass, the law heightens sin by making it that. It heightens the guilt and increases the knowledge of sin. So as we think about the law, we're getting some important information here about what the law does. And what Paul is saying here is that even where sin is increased by the law, grace abounds all the more. The Jews in Paul's day thought that the law came along to help us be righteous. It was a tool for righteousness. And Paul shatters that. He says, look, you will not find righteousness in the law because the law actually becomes a, an agent of, of sin and death. What? The holy law of God becomes an agent, a partner, if you will, in sin and death. How so? Sin and death are totally contrary to the law in this way. It increases sin. It makes it explicit. It gives the knowledge of sin, and it solidifies sin as a direct rebellion against God's command. So to the Jews who thought that the law could make them righteous, Paul says, no, what the law does is increase your unrighteousness quite to the contrary, my friend. Let me give you a few implications of this power of God's grace through Christ before we move on to the next contrast, which is two backgrounds. Let, let me give you just a few implications of this contrast of two powers. So first comes from a quote from Kent Hughes. Let me read that to you. No matter how great your sin, so you're here this morning, you're listening to this. No matter how great your sin, in quantity or depth, God's grace superabounds to you. No one is beyond the grace of Christ. The, the call, this is me now, that was, that was Kent Hughes. The call is to come to him and lavishly receive this free gift. So the call goes out this morning to come to Christ. Come to this one who lavishly gives this free gift. Jesus himself said, the one who comes to me, I will by no means turn away. Come to Christ this morning. Come to him. And this grace abounds to you as a free gift. What a call. What a day as we consider the magnitude of God's grace in Christ and how powerful it is to overcome the work of Adam. What a wonderful day to turn your eyes to Christ, trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, and commit your life to following him as your Lord. The obedience of faith for the sake of his name. 
pray that that would fall on you this morning. By God's grace, if you're not a Christian, that you would trust in this Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. So that's the first implication. The second comes, I think, from Hebrews 4.16. Listen to what it says there. And you probably know this verse. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There is a throne of grace. God sits on it. And remember what we saw at the beginning of chapter five. We stand, we have access to God into this grace in which we stand. There's a throne, it's God's throne, it's a throne of grace, and we stand in the midst of it. We stand as an audience of God sitting on this throne of grace as those who stand in grace. This passage is filled with grace language. You could just go through, we could probably spend 30 minutes just looking at all the different words that, and the word for gift that are translated in English, those words are even different. They're synonyms. There's so many different words here for grace and gift, reminding us that God is, in fact, gracious to sinners. Listen, yes, God is the judge of sinners, but he is gracious to sinners. He abounds in forgiveness and love and stuff. Come to him. He is a gracious God. He will wipe away your sins no matter what they are through Christ. Paul saw himself as an example of this great truth. That's why he reiterated constantly that he was the chief of sinners. Because he, he was a living, breathing illustration of the extent of God's grace. Because he was a murderer. He was a blasphemer. He killed God's people. He killed God's people. And yet God came to him graciously. And didn't just make him a Christian. He made him the apostle to the Gentiles. And the one who wrote most of the New Testament. That's incredible. The grace of God. Third, notice that the first power is broken whereas the second is not in this passage, what, this is the third implication of this first point. As we come to this, we see that the power of death is broken. Christ breaks it. He paralyzes it. He squashes it. The first power is broken, but the second power stands forever. So you see, the surpassing greatness of God's grace in Christ that brings us to our second contrast, two backgrounds. Look at verse 16 with me. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. This point's a little shorter there are two contrasts in this verse, and we'll look at the second one in a moment, so we'll, we're going to go there and spend a little more time on that. But we have two contrasts in this single verse, and here I want to briefly highlight the first. So notice that what came through Adam, here referred to as the judgment, 
came after one trespass. I want you to see this language. This is important. The judgment came through one single trespass. That was its background. The background to judgment and death entering the world was one sin. Look at what Paul says here. What is the background for what God has done in Christ? Many sins. You see that? That's a, it's a little observation we can't miss. One sin stands as the backdrop for the judgment and death that entered the world. Many sins stand as the backdrop for the free grace in Christ. So the background for the entrance of judgment is one sin. But the background for the entrance of grace is a world full of sin. Just let that settle on you for a moment. It can can be easily overlooked. What does this tell us? Well, very simply, it puts the extent and magnitude of God's grace on display. It entered. This grace of God in Christ entered the world amidst the backdrop of an avalanche of sin. It's similar to what we encountered at the beginning of chapter 5. That while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we see that that. God did this while we were sinners. He did this for enemies. And now we're seeing that God did this amidst the backdrop of an uncountable, innumerable number of sins. The background itself serves to show how powerful and how mighty God's grace in Christ is to defeat sin and death. That's the big idea here as we think about these two backgrounds. So let's go to our third point, two outcomes. Now let's look at verses 16 to 17 together. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. You see that one and many. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. These verses answer the question, what are the respective results or effects, or consequences, or outcomes of these two men? What what is it that came through Adam, and what is it that has come through Christ? Verses 16 to 17 give us that answer, but we get a little bit of additional material in verse 19, so drop down with me as we consider these two outcomes in verses 16 and 17. Drop down to verse 19 as well. For as by the one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners. See the result? So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So let's look at these. Three contrasting outcomes. Three are given. So let's spend some time looking at them. The first 
is condemnation versus justification. Condemnation through Adam, justification through Christ. Each of us in this room right now, at this very moment, this is sobering, has a status, a standing, a label before the face of Almighty God. Each of us right now, everyone on on this road, everyone in this town, everyone period, right now in this moment has a status, a standing, and a label before the face of God. If you are in Adam, your status is condemned. It, as it were, reads condemned over your head. As God looks down from heaven, written on the top of your head are the words condemned. That's the label. That's the status. If you are in Christ, your status is justified. So God looks down from heaven. He sees you, Christian. What does he see? A justified person. That's what distinguishes you from a non-Christian. It's not what you do in any given moment. It is this status, this standing that you have before God justified. The status of condemned is proven all around us by death. And the status of justified is proven by the resurrection of Christ. How is it that we know if we are in Christ, that we are justified because God raised Christ from the dead. That's how we know. That's why Paul says at the end of chapter 4 that he was justified, that, or that he was raised for our justification. Christ's vindication happens at his resurrection. God Almighty raising Christ, his Son. God the Father raising God the Son from the dead, the God-man, Jesus Christ, proves that those who trust in Christ are justified because Christ is, as it were, justified or vindicated in his resurrection. Shown to be perfect, shown to be the one who sufficiently put away sin on the cross. Where Adam brought condemnation, Christ brings justification. So that's the first contrast here, the first result we see. The second, so we're looking at two outcomes, and the first of those concerns condemnation versus justification. The second is the reign of death versus the reign of life. As I said above, physical death shows the reality of judgment and condemnation. How do we know that sin exists in the world? Well, we know that immediately. We look at our own hearts. But how do we know that sin exists and the power that sin brings into the world, death, exists? We just look around. We see it all around us. We die because of sin. We are separated from God because of sin. Our hearts are estranged from God's holiness because of sin. Death is a great power that reigns over the world. Isn't it instructive for us to consider death as a reigning power? I mean, that's what Paul is saying here. If you want to understand the world, one metaphor one picture for understanding what we experience in this life and what we see all around us is King Death. 
on his throne. Death reigns over our world. Death is the ultimate pandemic. There is a pandemic. There is an ultimate pandemic, and it's death. It's coming for every single person. Everyone will contract this one no matter what. Death reigns. But Christ brings life. That's the big idea in this portion. Christ brings life through the one man Christ. By being joined to him, by being united to him, we are given life. And even more, as Paul says here, we will reign in life. We are given life in Christ and we will reign in life. Notice that Paul doesn't just say death reigns versus life reigns. It's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to interpret kind of what he's saying because you really got to get down to the, He doesn't say death reigns versus life reigns. It's not a perfect parallelism there. It's death reigns versus we reign in life. We, as it were, become life in our reigning with Christ, what a defeat. To those who are given the gift of righteous standing before God, we walk in newness of life, as Paul will later say in Romans 6, 4, and we will live eternally. John 10, 10, Jesus says these words, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Life lived now in holiness, in relationship to God, and life forever, abundantly, never ending. Listen to the outcome for you, Christian. What's coming down the line for you? Revelation 22, 5. This is going to happen for you, Christian. And this is meant to, to fuel you as you see the day approaching. You're meant to be encouraged in this. You're meant to fixate on this. Colossians 3.1, set your mind. This is what he says, Revelation, the Apostle John. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And here it is. And they will reign forever and ever. This reign with Christ will never cease and the reigning with Christ, you maybe wondered about that. It just brings us back to Genesis chapters 1 to 3. God gave Adam and Eve dominion over everything. All of that will be reversed. That will be present in a new heaven and new earth. And we will reign with the God-man, Christ Jesus, forever. And ever. And ever. And ever. And ever. Third, the third result Contrasting results are being made sinners versus being made righteous. The verb that Paul uses here basically means to appoint. And as I said before with condemnation and justification, this is a status. It is a standing before God. We're made righteous. It doesn't mean that when we're saved that God instantly makes us perfect. This is one of the problems with Roman Catholicism is they misunderstand the forensic reckoning, counting nature of justification. For, for them, it, it's understood that we are made righteous. And so after that, we have all of these sort of venial and mortal sins that we got to deal with because they're still sin. 
And if we're sinners in any way, then that's a problem before God. We need to be truly lived out righteous. And so, of course, the sacramental system of Roman Catholicism is meant to be the the means of grace so that our account shrinks down. It's a status before God that cannot be taken away. You don't need any sacrament to make it better. You don't need a sacrament to, to boost up what you lost yesterday. It's a standing before the holy God, justified. It is a standing, righteous, a reckoning that does not depend on you, but depends on Christ. We are declared righteous through the righteous one. Christ's righteousness, I love this. This doctrine cannot be explored enough. Listen, Christian, Christ's righteousness. How many times are we told in the New Testament that the Father is pleased with the Son? Christ's righteousness is imputed to your account. God sees the righteousness of Christ when he looks at you. Christian, be secure in that. Of course we are frail. We fumble our way through this entire life. We fumble our way through every hour of the day in our sinfulness, sins we don't even know about. Pride and selfishness that is so incipient, so buried within us. But Christ, he stands righteous before God in our stead. His righteousness imputed to our account. And that leads us to our final point this morning, or the final contrast, and that is two acts, two powers, two backgrounds, two outcomes, and now we come to two acts. As we finish up this morning, look with me at verses 18 to 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now we're back to where we started. We're back to the big comparison. One man, one act. But in this comparison, there is great contrast. As I've said, first, verse 18, we have trespass versus act of righteousness. Notice that the act of Adam is called a trespass. The act of Christ is called an act of righteousness. Adam broke God's command, but Christ met God's perfect standard. You ever gone to the fair or something, you have that big hammer and you hit that, the little bell or the little ball and it goes up and hits the bell. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. Well, Christ goes all the way to the top, hits the bell every single day time. He does not fall short of the glory of God. Not this Christ. No. He was perfect. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake God, he made him to be sin, this is Christ, who knew no sin, 
Christ never experienced sin because he never did it. He never committed it so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see that? Christ's righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30. And because of him you are, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ was so righteous, he is righteousness. He's the incarnation of righteousness. He's the enfleshment of righteousness. As Jesus told John the Baptist at his baptism, Matthew 3.15, probably you've read these words before and kind of scratched your head and wonder what's going on there. I, I think that this is in view. Matthew 3.15, John the Baptist is there baptizing people. Probably a towering figure. I mean, all the people were coming out to him. Just, uh, just an amazing figure. Even the religious leaders who hated him were amazed at this, this guy preaching, eating bugs and covered in camel hair and so forth. Just a very strange individual to them, but filled with power in his proclamation. And then comes Jesus. And John shrinks. He shrinks down to nothing, to an ant. And he says, Jesus wants John to baptize him. And, and, and John says, I, I can't do that. I can't baptize you. You need to be baptizing me. I'm a sinner. I, I, I'm nothing. I'm not even worthy to reach down and loosen up his sandal or carry it. He's the Christ of God, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sinful man like Isaiah. But what does Jesus say to him? Let it be so now, John. Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. How is that? Because Christ in his living and dying is righteousness for us. And Christ was born under the law. As Galatians 4.4 4 says, in order that he might perfectly fulfill it in 100% righteousness. He is the God-man. He is truly God and truly man. And as man, he fully fulfilled God's righteous law. Righteousness was fulfilled through his life, through his ministry, and We'll see specifically through what in a moment. But first, verse 18, we get the trespass versus the act of righteousness. Second, in verse 19, we have disobedience versus obedience. And this is really a restatement of the previous verse. Adam disobeyed God. He went against God's will. Jesus Christ, by contrast, obeyed God. He followed God's will. He did what the Father said to do. And I love these verses from John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is daily feasting on the will of God. He's daily receiving his, his comfort and his satisfaction from doing the will of God. How frequently we, we're just living in the flesh just filling our bellies. Not Christ, not this Christ. His feast, his food, his sustenance was to do precisely and fully what God the Father 
commanded him to do and sent him to do and commanded him to do in his law. Born under the law. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. His entire reason for existence in this world as the God-man was to do the will of the Father. But while we can understand this obedience to encompass all of Jesus' life, that's been my focus up till now, Paul's focus is on one act of obedience. Remember that it's the one act of the one man, Adam, and it's the one act of the one man, Christ. Just as Adam committed one great act of disobedience, Christ performed one great act of obedience. And what I'm referring to is obvious it's the cross. Here we see the glory of the cross. It all hinges on the cross. Everything before that in Jesus' life as the God-man, as incarnate deity, everything before that and everything after that, that's the central point because that's the point of obedience of the Son of God. That's the point where what Adam did is undone in that moment. Philippians 2.8 makes this clear, as Thomas read to us earlier. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, and listen, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is this not how he prayed in the garden before he was to be crucified? You wonder, you know, what, what, what those prayers are about. It just sounds so weird. It's like, oh, wow, you know, Jesus is saying, let this cup pass from me. That, that kind of makes me feel a little strange. I mean, Jesus is supposed to just grab that cup and drink it down. What we are seeing in those prayers in Gethsemane is the obedience of the Son of God. We're seeing him obey in the face of great sacrifice. We're seeing him obey in the face of giving up everything. We're seeing him obey in the face of bearing sin for sinners and being estranged from his father. That's what we're seeing. Matthew 26, 42, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And praise God, he hung on that cross. He hung there, nails through his hands, nails through his feet, mocked by all, until one of the thieves, by God's grace, stopped. Mocked by all, a curse, and God turned away from Christ in that moment because he became Vile sinner on your behalf, Christian. That's what God did in Christ. And that is what overcomes that wickedness of Adam and all that flows from it. So where does all of this leave us this morning? Christ has defeated sin and death. Christ alone. People say, well, 
How can you say that salvation is only in Christ? After reading a passage like this, how can it be any other way? It is only through this Christ. Because he is the second Adam. You either belong to Adam or you belong to Christ. If you belong to Moses or you belong to Muhammad or you belong to Buddha, you perish because you belong to Adam. But in Christ, life reigns forever. Christ has defeated death. Where he stands, there is nothing but victory in him. Everything that is wrong with your life, all the things that are wrong with our lives and our world, will one day be entirely put away forever. Live now in the newness of life. Enjoy in Christian assurance. Know that Christ belongs to you and you belong to him. Do not doubt. Live in great expectation. Live now with Christ standing as the righteous one on your behalf before the face of the righteous God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that is secure for us in Jesus. We praise you, God, for the great gift that we have through his act of obedience on the cross. How greatly he endured your wrath on that day. We will never understand the extent of his suffering. We'll never be able to mine those depths. We'll spend eternity, Father, celebrating it and even growing in our understanding of it. And yet we'll never reach the bottom of that well, or rather, the top of that mountain. God, we praise you this day that we have your word before us, and we are not left in the dark about the glories of Christ's work and all that that means for us as Christians. We pray for those we know and love who are not Christians, who are, who are still in Adam. Because we know in Adam all die. And though our flesh still participates in the in-Adamness and we will die physically, Lord, we know that absent from the body is present with the Lord for us. And to live is Christ to die is gain. But not so for the sinner. T to die is to enter into eternal death where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth in eternal torment from the presence of God. So Lord, we just pray for those people. We love them. 
We desire that they be saved, and we know they cannot be saved apart from your grace, but we pray, God, that they would repent, that they would believe. And if there's anyone here this morning who's not a Christian, Lord, would you move their hearts to repent and believe this very moment? Turn away from sin and look to Christ. Trust Him. I pray that that would happen, Lord, even among us today, and that they would come and find one of the elders or deacons or gospel community group leaders or ministry leaders, someone, and just tell them that they've trusted in Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day. We thank you now that we come to feed on the Lord's Supper. We come to celebrate all these glorious truths imaged for us in the bread, symbolizing the body of Christ, and the fruit of the vine, symbolizing Christ's blood. We thank you for him. And we thank you for this remembrance of him and this time to commune with him. And we pray that it would be that, a time of vertical communion with Christ and horizontal communion and celebration in our identity with one another. Would it be that, Lord, today for us? In Jesus' name, amen.